This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is the parable chapter. We were here uh, very recently. And it's a series of parables that is related to the kingdom, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. There's about seven in all. So we just want to look at this one, uh, verse 31 and verse 32. Jesus speaking. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds. But when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and they nest in its branches. Someone has said that large doors swing on small hinges. And from little acorns, great oaks grow. Apostle James puts it another way. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindles. He talks about a great ship that's moved about by a very small rudder. So all of these sayings are simply pointing out that there are some things that have great power and influence disproportionate to their size. And by using a mustard seed in this parable, Jesus vividly illustrates this principle even in the kingdom of heaven. However, before I get to the main thrust of what I want to say tonight, I need you to know that Bible commentators and expositors are divided on what exactly Jesus is trying to teach about the kingdom in this parable. There's a negative view and there's a positive view. On the negative side, some say it's talking about corruption within the kingdom and this abnormal growth of the seed and all these birds of the air lodging in its branches. On the positive side, speaking of expansion and growth within the kingdom, even though its beginning is small. Now, it is true that Jesus talked about the kingdom and he talked about it is a narrow way and few there be that find it if we're going to walk in this kingdom. He also said that the tares grows up with the wheat and will not be dealt with until the end of the age. He also said that regarding the church, which is part of the kingdom of heaven, he said it is a little flock. Now, I still maintain that this parable is speaking about growth. And by inference, the church is part of the kingdom about growth even within the church. Now, Jesus is not saying that during this present age, that somehow that the kingdom and the church within the kingdom is going to take over the whole world. Now, there are those preachers who believe that that is going to happen. And they teach and they preach that that is going to be the case, that the church 
is going to have so much power and influence and dominion, they say, that one day it will take over all the institutions of this world, the political institutions, the economical institutions, and will, and will be subject to us. But nowhere in Scripture will you find that. Jesus certainly didn't make that claim. So the world's not going to become Christianized, we would say. But there's some who believe that it will. And then whenever we get it sorted out, the mess of this world, then and only then will Jesus return. But Jesus never said such a thing. In fact, this world will be in continual rebellion against the kingdom of God and will be continually antagonistic against the church within the kingdom of God until Jesus returns. And I think that we can see that happening every single day. And so, not until this present invisible spiritual kingdom is made manifest in a tangible way, when Jesus returns, not until then will the whole world be subject to Christ's rule on earth. Now, the disciples made this mistake also because they too wanted a literal tangible physical kingdom and they wanted it right now uh, they wanted to be have their thrones in this kingdom and they wanted to be seated on the thrones right now but what Jesus is teaching here is the tremendous growth of the kingdom the spiritual kingdom relative to its small beginnings now every kingdom has to have a king so consider just for a moment, think about this. Think about the inconspicuous beginnings even of the king of the kingdom born to poor parents in a little backwater village in a small Middle Eastern country. Very, very humble beginnings. Born even in a stable. And when he grew up to manhood, his own brothers and sisters were suspicious of him and did not understand his mission in life. They didn't get it, actually, until he was resurrected. And from the age of 12 until he was 30, those 18 years, we know nothing about. The only footnote in the Scriptures is this. He grew in stature and favor with God and man, and that's all we know. But at age 30, he bursts onto the scene, and the religious crowd immediately tried to marginalize him and try to destroy his reputation. And even though some people believed that he was the Messiah, but really, and they favored him, the poor people especially, but that cut no ice with the religious hierarchy. They had little, he had little influence. He had no influence at all over them, at all over the powers that be, whether it was political powers or religious powers. Now, I mean, if you're going to start a worldwide movement, surely you have to get the movers and the shakers behind you, right? Wrong. Jesus didn't have that. In fact, Jesus had 12 men of average intelligence who had no worldly influence whatsoever. Unlike those today who are vying for political power. Notice somebody who's wanting to run for a prime minister, run for president, or some position of high. What do they do? They court 
the business world. They court the celebrity world. They try to get some kind of, of credibility and some kind of status and some kind of kudos from that world around them to elevate themselves, to elevate their status. But Jesus didn't have that. He's just 12 ordinary men. These men were fishermen, tax collectors. One was a, a paramilitarist, a zealot, who hated Rome and would have murdered in order to rid themselves of that Roman occupation. None of them, you understand, were rabbinically trained. None of them were theologians. None of them were PhDs. None of them were orators. Just ordinary five-eighths garden variety people, just like us. That's what Jesus started with. Not only that, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, who was from Judea, the rest of them were from Galilee, from that region which was a poor region, which was the northern region, which is more rural, whereas the Judeans kind of looked down their nose at the northerns. The southerns didn't like the northern ones. They thought they were cut above them. And after all, Jerusalem was the, was the seat of government, seat of politics and economics and, and religion and everything, and that was in the south. But notice that Jesus chose these Galileans. And they were, so to speak, outside the religious pale. And then on top of that, they were prone to mistakes, failures, fleshly ambitions. And when the religious establishment crucified their leader, what did they do? They all forsook him and fled. And even the bravest among them denied that they ever even knew the Son of God, denied they ever even knew Jesus. And the worst among them actually sold him for 30 pieces of silver and was a traitor. And yet, from that small, ignominious beginning, from that seemingly insignificant, easily crushed mustard seed, from that there began to grow a great tree. First 12, then 70, then 120, the day of Pentecost. And then 3,000, and then 5,000, and then all of Jerusalem, the Bible says, was filled with their doctrine. And then from Jerusalem to Samaria, Judea, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Until today, there are untold millions upon absolute millions of people that are part of this great kingdom of God on earth, and specifically part of the church of Jesus Christ. And so like James said, a little spark kindles a great fire. Now in this parable, Jesus is teaching a few things to his, to his disciples and to us. These things are written for our admonition. First of all, he was trying to change their perception of the kingdom. They were Jewish. They wanted a Messiah, but a Messiah of their own making. Their idea of a Messiah was not Jesus. Their idea of a Messiah would be one who would be a political master, someone who would stand up for their rights under this Roman domination, somebody who would have great skills, somebody who could go before kings, Somebody who could talk plenty. That's what they wanted. They wanted an economic genius 
They were tired of all these taxes that were being heaped upon them. They wanted somebody to deal with all that mess and, and poverty that the country was in. But above all things, they wanted somebody that was military. They wanted somebody with power. They wanted somebody that could raise up a great army and lead them and defeat these hated Romans and kick them out, these pagans that was destroying their country. That's the Messiah that they wanted. They wanted the Israel to go back to what it was like under David and under Solomon, under that golden era. That's what they longed for. They were already planning who was going to be the greatest in that kingdom. Jesus heard them talking about it. Remember James and John, how the mother came to Jesus and says, would you grant that my two sons will sit in your right hand, your left hand, when you come into your kingdom? That was their thinking. That's what they wanted. And Jesus had to change that whole perception. Even the people in John 6, 15, even the people wanted to make him a king. They were going to forcibly make him a king. That's how badly they wanted a Messiah of their making. And then, of course, in Luke 19, they thought that the kingdom was going to come immediately. You know, Jesus was a miracle worker. Great throngs of people followed him everywhere he went. If only he would just do what they wanted him to do. If only he would just rise up, the people would get behind him if he was going to attack the Romans. But that wasn't the kingdom that Jesus was raising up. Sure it wasn't. It wasn't a physical manifestation. It wasn't a political or an economic or a military kingdom. It was an invisible spiritual kingdom. And they didn't get it. And they didn't want it. So he was trying to change their whole perception, including his own disciples. He was trying to change their perception. And oftentimes we need our perception changed of what God wants and what we want or what we think God wants for us. Sometimes we need our perception changed. And we need to understand the difference between God's kingdom and the kingdom of this world, how vastly different it is. Secondly, he wanted to show them that his values and this world's values are very, very different indeed. Now we know that. And in fact, Martin this morning brought up very valid points about that. Uh, Here we are today, just a few days ago, uh, our country took a massive backward step in God's eyes. 1.2 million people in the Republic of Ireland said no to God's way. And in effect even though they weren't thinking this, but in effect they were saying, God, we don't care about your laws. We don't care about your word. We don't care about your kingdom. This is what we want. This is what we vote for. This is what we're going to rejoice over, regardless of what you want and what your kingdom wants and what your word wants. That, in effect, is what 1.2 million people did yesterday 
What happened whenever the law struck down the Asher's bakery and found them guilty? I, I don't think the judiciary and the politicians in the South, I don't think they understand the ramifications of all of this. I don't think they get it at all. And there's going to be ramifications for every single one of us. Take the Asher's case. In effect, what that means is that what your conscience about anything from now on, if you're in business and somebody comes to you about anything, your conscience doesn't matter a jot. It doesn't matter. You will be struck down. You will become the victim. And that is the law. Because we do not, we do not agree with God's law. Do you know that the nation of Britain, its laws was built. It was built on the Judeo-Christian ethic. It was built on the Bible. But we're so far removed from it, we don't even see it. Let me tell you, in other countries where this has happened, this is only the start. <laughs> only the start. I was reading just today in Massachusetts, in, the, in the, one of the United States, just a few years ago, whenever they passed that law and they redefined marriage, that since that... The other laws that has come in on the heels of that is, is amazing. You wouldn't believe the laws that's come in since that. Same in Canada. I was reading the other day and they said the debates we're having in Britain today, you couldn't have it in Canada. You would not be allowed. It would be against the law. You'd be arrested. You think it couldn't happen here? It's on its way. It's on its way. It's happening before our very eyes. His values are very different than this world's values. And do you know what? The day is coming. In fact, the day now is when as Christians we are going to be put to the test. More and more and more we will be put to the test. Will we stand for the truth or will we not? It's going to come right, as Martin said this morning, it's going to be right in our face. And we'll have to stand up, won't we? Either that or we roll over and play dead, but we'll have to do it. So whether it's business or whether it's politics or whatever it is, do you know that in the south out of 166, I'll use the term parliamentarians down there, only three voted no? No wonder it passed. You know, we were down there last week, Sally and Claire and I, we were driving through the city, Galway and Sligo and all those cities, Every lamppost was yes, 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 yes. The heart of you, you could have counted it in two hands the many no posters we've seen. It's all yes. On the buses, everywhere. Massive movement. And it was young people that led it. It was young people. Young people leads every revolution. You know that, don't you? All the revolutions you see around the world, it's young people that leads it. They're out at the forefront. And you know what? They're not interested in God. They're not interested in the things of God. Because this is built on love, don't you know? As long as two people loves each other. Well, what's going to happen if a brother and sister says, well, we love each other, we want to get married. How are you going to judge that? You say, well, that's not the law. Well, not yet it isn't, but it could become the law. <laughs> what if two men and a woman wants to get married? Well, that's not the law. Well, it could become the law. Why not? If they love each other, if that's the definition of it, why not? But those are not kingdom values, sure they're not. 
Far from it. But here we are, 2015, this is what we're faced with, and it will be increasing dramatically. Who would have thought 10 years ago would even be talking about this? What's the next 10 years going to be like? Hmm. And Jesus is teaching here about different values within his kingdom. And anyway, leaving all that aside, who wants to be likened onto a mustard seed? <laughs> Certainly the world doesn't, does it? No, no. Well, maybe be likened onto a mighty oak, perhaps, or a cedar of Lebanon, maybe. Certainly for sure, a great giant redwood, but not a mustard seed. A leader, yes, but a laborer, no. A special throne for me, yes, but a servant, no. You know, Jesus had this discussion with his disciples just before he died. Literally just before he died. They were talking among themselves the thrones they were going to occupy. And Jesus had a supper with them, and not one of them had the wit to wash feet. They didn't see themselves as servants. They saw themselves as kings sitting on thrones, ruling the kingdom. And Jesus, who was the king, stripped off, put an apron on, bent down, and washed their feet. <sighs> Entirely different values in this kingdom, isn't it? Matthew chapter 18. At the time, verse 1, at the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. So there's a humility in this kingdom that you don't find in the world. Matthew 20. Read from verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. He said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink, be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the two brothers. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. For whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. 
Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ah. Not many noble are called, Paul says. Hmm. Not many high and mighty. First Corinthians 1. But the lowly, the humble, the ones with the servants' hearts. First thing Jesus looks for in a leader is a servant's heart. Hmm. He wants us to be able to serve. If you're too big to serve, you're too little to lead. That's the principle in God's kingdom. And so his values and world's values are very different. And the third thing I think that he was showing here is the potential of great endings from small beginnings. Never underestimate small beginnings. Samuel was just a wee boy in the temple under Eli the priest. His job was to fill the lamps, to trim the wicks, to sweep the floor, to do the little tasks. And he did it faithfully. But while he was sleeping, God spoke to him. He was just a boy. And God said, I'm going to tell you something that all the ears in Israel will tingle when they hear it. And it was a mighty prophetic message to Eli. God was going to remove Eli and his sons from the priesthood. A little boy going to his mentor and having to tell him. By the way, <laughs> Eli was very gracious about accepting it, if you read the story. To his credit, he was very gracious in accepting it because he knew it was the Lord. It wasn't this wee boy. It was the Lord through this wee boy. And so Samuel did that. God was about to do a new thing in Israel. There was a shaking going to happen. Things were going to change dramatically. And God spoke it through a little boy. And that little boy grew up to become a great man of God. He was the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He came at a, at a transitional time in the kingdom. And he played his part very, very well indeed. In fact, whenever Saul became, and the people cried out they wanted a king because up to then they had been ruled by a theocracy. God was ruling them, three men of his choice. But they wanted a monarchy. They wanted a king like the other nations. And God says, okay, you can have a king. And they got one. And boy, they regretted that. After a while, when they got Saul, they wished they never had got him. But they did. And it seemed for a while that Samuel then kind of melted into the background. For then he did something that men and women all over the world are enjoying to this day. He started the schools of the prophets. Those were the forerunners of the Bible schools today. So if any of you have ever been to the Bible school or gone to Bible school, you can thank Samuel for that because he's the one that started this off. And that was continued through Elijah and through Elisha, the schools of the prophets. But it was Samuel who did that. Just a little boy, but his influence 
disproportionate to his size has been great even to this very day that we live in, the 21st century. The potential of great endings from small beginnings. David was just a shepherd boy when God called him. He had seven brothers. Remember when Samuel came to, God says, go and fill your horn with oil and go to Jesse and anoint. <laughs> he had to anoint one of his sons to be king and, and how Jesse brought all of the sons before him. And some were big and tall. And God says, no, it's not, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. All seven and passed by, none of them. Have you yet any more sons? Well, I've got the wee boy out there with the sheep. The wee stripling. The wee skinny rake out there. <laughs> I says, bring him. And that was the Lord's anointed. Just a wee skinny shepherd boy. He rose up to become Israel's greatest king. Mighty warrior. A great poet. Wonderful musician. Tremendous writer of songs and poetry. Do you know there's about 400 statements from the Psalms in the New Testament? Most of them penned by David. That today, just about every funeral, every wedding, something of David's writings are in those ceremonies to this very day, after thousands of years. Hmm. Elisha, he was just a farmer. Hmm. He was out plowing one day in the field with his 12 yoke of oxen. Elijah came. The call of God was in his life. Commissioned. Did twice as many miracles as Elijah. Mighty, mighty man of God. Just a farmer in a field. God loves to do that, you know. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in Mount Vernon Church. started a Bible class for young men. And Dwight Lyman Moody went. He'd only been two weeks. And he worked close by in a shoe shop. And God put a burden in Kimball's heart for this young man. And so he walked over to the shoe shop and he looked through the window and he seen young D.L. Moody. He seen him working away there. And he wanted to go and talk to him, but he chickened out. And he went to walk away. He didn't want to embarrass him in front of his... And he went to walk away, and he stopped. He said, no, I've I, I got to do this. And he went in. Here's all he said. He put his hand on his shoulders, and he says, young man, God wants your life. And he walked out. And so when he walked out... Young Moody thought, he's only met me twice. And he is deeply concerned about my soul. I think I should be concerned too. And he entered the back room and he got on his knees and he gave his heart to Jesus. So the next best thing he thought I can do after this is join that church. So he applied to join the Mount Vernon Church. 
But he was so ignorant of spiritual things, he thought the book of John, he was thumbing through Genesis to find the book of John. He hadn't a clue. And they turned him down for membership because he knew so little. Very small beginnings. But he became a mighty servant of God. And you know, in the end, it is reported that he spoke, he preached to over 100 million people in his lifetime. Imagine that. 100 million people. And he won countless tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions to the Lord. That wee boy in the shoe shop. That Sunday school teacher had a burden for him. And he started the great Bible school that one in 10 missionaries in America graduated from his Bible school and he never went to college. He had a very ordinary education. You see the potential of great endings from small beginnings. William Carey had no thought of God, no interest in the things of God whatsoever as he was growing up. But his father sent them to work along with a cobbler to, to get a trade. And the cobbler was a Christian, a believer, a godly man. They started to talk to him and share with him. And Kerry, young Kerry, became a believer. And this man started to talk to him about the world out there that was without Christ. And he began to think, how can I reach those people? And he put up a map above where he worked of the nations. And he found out how many people in those nations, how many were Christian, non-Christian. He began to pray and wonder how he could reach them. Now you have to understand, when he went then to try to talk to other churches about reaching out as a missionary to the ends of the earth, you have to understand that wasn't a done thing in those days. Almost all Protestant churches thought that they didn't need to send missionaries. Their idea, in fact, one told them, son, he says, when he got up to speak about the mission, he says, son, sit down. If God wants to convert the heathen, he doesn't need you to do it, he doesn't need me to do it, he'll do it himself. That was the attitude. And that was the prevailing attitude. No wonder he became known as the father of missions. But he didn't buy into that. He wanted to reach those people. And reach them he did. Eventually he went to India and he never came back. He stayed in India over 41 years, never had a furlough ever back again home. Stayed there and he lived and died there. He translated the Bible into six different languages from Genesis to Revelation. Portions of the Bible into 29 other languages. Built a hundred schools for children and built a college still going to this day. Became known as the father of modern missions. And his missions are still continuing. From small beginnings, there's great potential. Lauren Cunningham, he was just a, a student. He was a gospel singer. He was in a little gospel singing group that would go all over singing. 
And one day the group was in uh, the Bahamas, and they got taught to missionaries. And through talking to missionaries, it sparked the idea of missions. He hadn't been thinking about missions before that. That just sparked the idea. And one night in his room, he had a vision. He had a vision of a big map on the wall and the sea, it was a map of the nations, and the sea crashing into the nations. And as he kept looking at it, the waves of the sea turned into young men and young women of all the nations going into the nations and going into the highways and the byways and the streets and the homes, ministering. He says, no, it just left him. His first thought was, was that God or was that me? <laughs> you know, it was four years later before he did anything about that. For this time, he now has went through seminary, Assemblies of God minister, was a youth leader in a great Assemblies of God church. And this vision came back to him. So he decided to take over a hundred of the young people on a mission. He says that's when he discovered that sightseeing and mission evangelism doesn't go together. <laughs> and he came back very disappointed. Didn't accomplish what he thought it would, but the idea was there. And eventually, after a very, very slow, difficult start, eventually it began to catch on. And today, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, is the largest missionary organization in the world. They have something like 18,000 full-time volunteers in 100 different mission areas, in 180 nations of the world. They have what are called mercy ships, Rachel, uh, who's busting to go on a mercy ship, isn't she, Sam? She had applied, and then she, she's gone now to Madagascar. She was back in August, but she's been busting to go on the mercy ships because that's medical, and she's a nurse. And they go all over the world in these mercy ships, and they treat people, and they give them treatment and operations and all kinds of things and help them with food and nutrition, everything. And that's gone all over the world. 365 days a year. And it all started with a young student having a vision in his room. Hmm. The potential of great endings from small beginnings. Even though the mustard seed is the smallest of all of the seeds, Jesus said it grew into a great tree where even the birds of the air came and lodged in its branches. Jesus said, if you have faith, even as a what? A grain of mustard seed. <laughs> That's encouraging, isn't it? Say, if I had great faith, even as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this, just a grain smallest of all of the seeds. Every single one of us in this room that knows Christ tonight has got at least that amount of faith in our hearts tonight. The potential is great, isn't it? Even though it may be just a tiny little mustard seed of faith, but the potential is great for great endings of small beginnings. So where are you tonight? You say, well, I'm not much. I haven't got much. I can't do much. And we give ourselves all kinds of excuses, don't we? Not to be doing 
not to be serving, not to be having, not to be being. For that little parable tells us even if we're just a tiny little amount of faith, it's enough to get us started. It gets us going in the right direction, amen? So where are you tonight? You got mustard seed faith? That's all you need to get you going, isn't it? It can grow into a great tree. It can take you through this life and it can take you right into eternity. Just a simple, simple trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That saves your eternal soul forever and forever and forever. <laughs> Just a simple, simple belief in Jesus Christ and trusting Him as Savior. That's all it's required. That will save your soul for eternity. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, you said you take the things that be not, the things that are nothing, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh can glory in his presence. Thank you for your grace tonight. Thank you for what you have put into us, for the deposit of heaven that's in our souls tonight. And it's there by grace. But Lord, you want that to mature and to grow and to blossom and bloom and bear fruit. So help us like that little mustard seed to do that tonight. That this incoming week or these weeks or months that lie ahead, that our lives see growth in your kingdom. So we bless you for it. We thank you for your mercy that give it to us. Lord, where would we stand tonight if it wasn't for your grace and mercy? Thank you, Lord Jesus. So we praise you and we honor you tonight. And as we go out into this working week, we pray that our lives will be a reflection of your life in us, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.